welcome to CMEX podcast. I'm Charlotte Leslie and I'm the director of the Conservative Middle East Council. It was 10 years ago today that a Tunisian man, Mohamed Bouazizi, reached the limits of his endurance and set fire to himself in a tragic act of protest and despair. He had lost his job. He was trying to earn a living selling fruit by the roadside when the authorities confiscated his wares. He died just under three weeks later on January the 4th. But this most desperate of acts sparked a popular revolt that swept through the whole of the Middle East and became known as the Arab Spring. In other podcasts, we talk to people from the region on the ground about their perspective. Today, we are focusing first on the British response. So we are very lucky to have with us today two former British ambassadors to talk about their unique perspective of the so-called Arab Spring and in particular, what it means for British policymaking. Christopher O'Connor, OBE, was the UK ambassador to Tunisia when the Arab Spring began, serving there from 2008 until 2013, before going on to serve as Consul General in Los Angeles. Chris, hello. Hi. And James Watt, CVO, has served as ambassador to Lebanon, Jordan, and became ambassador to Egypt a few months after the Arab Spring erupted there in the summer of 2011. Christopher, James, Thank you so much for being with us. You both had very particular perspectives as British ambassadors, which we're going to talk about today. So, Chris, if I might come to you first, can you describe what you experienced of the build-up to Mohamed Bouazizi's self-immolation on December the 17th, 2010? And what was the political situation? How did things feel then? The unique thing about the Tunisian revolution compared with the others is that because it was the first one, it wasn't following any kind of script. The people who were out protesting didn't see themselves as revolutionaries. They were just protesting against things that they felt were unacceptable. It wasn't right until the end, literally three or four days before the president left the country, that anyone on the streets was actually calling for regime change. So in the weeks before December 2010, things in Tunisia felt just like they had for a long time, many years. There was a repressive government, but not a high level of actual brutal violence. There was a lot of dissatisfaction with the economy, especially youth unemployment. And there were murmurs about uh, increasing corruption among people close to the, the president. But that didn't really feel unusual, like was how in Tunisia at the time. Uh, and even after the 17th of December, when Mohammed Bouazizi set fire to himself in the, in the way you described, nothing in the capital changed. So there were, there were rumours about an event in Sidi Bouzid, in the interior of the country, sort of far away from the capital. And there were some rumours about protests being broken up by the police. But that wasn't the first time that, that sort of thing had happened. So, and even up to the end of December, Nobody, not the diplomats, nor the think tanks, nor Tunisian civil society, not people protesting on the streets, certainly not the Tunisian government, had any sense that the revolution was, was imminent. And in fact, it wasn't until January that the protests really gained momentum. And over the course of literally two or three days, we in the embassy began to have the sense that this could actually be, be a revolution. And then, and then what happened then very very quickly was that the protesters in the streets who would who were just there to express their frustration they weren't 
initially there to try to change a regime. And they were out there and they realized that, that they were out there in such numbers that the government, which is an all-controlling government, had, had lost control. They realized that towards the end of the second week of January. Did the speed of things take you by surprise, the way it escalated? When you look back on things, because you know where things ended, you have a, a sort of sense of the arc of, of it all. At the time, there was no sense of direction of these events. It was un- unclear what was going to happen next. You kind of got caught up in the pace of it. It became clear that each day there was something big and new was going to happen. Was it that the, was it that the a protest of 100,000 people was going to be brutally repressed or was that it was going to, was it going to be twice as big as it was yesterday was the, the general strike going to spread the reality is you just get absorbed into that pace i don't think it was shocking at the time looking back on it it seems more shocking that something can happen that quickly and it spread very quickly across the region didn't it james hello thank you very much for for being with us you were in jordan as this was happening then, as I understand it, then you went back to London to work on our Arab Spring response. And then you went to Egypt um, some months after their Arab Spring had begun. Can you tell us a bit about a, what it was like in Jordan and then a bit more about what you were doing in London on our on, on our Arab Spring response, the UK's, before going to Egypt? Sitting in Jordan when all this began in Tunisia and then in Egypt, Jordan itself remained fairly calm, although you know, later on there were some quite modest demonstrations. But we could see immediately, I think all of us, Chris and, and I and, and, and our colleague in, in Cairo, Dominic Asquith, could see that this was going to be very important. And Dominic had been reporting actually well before then, months before then, about the build-up to this kind of thing. And when I left Jordan, as I was due to do, and go back to London, spent three months actually helping out trying to get the policy response together for the Arab Spring, I was struck by how, how poorly the policy machine worked in Whitehall. There was a lot of expertise among Foreign Office, some of the MOD and others about the region. And this was a quite unprecedented situation, this kind of widespread uprising, if you like. But it was not easy to get our voices heard about what it might mean and and so we found that British policymaking was really being led, I think, from a couple of sets of preconceived ideas. One is that at the time, as you know, Europe was triumphant in its liberal model of how to work together as European states, how to build democracy in the world. The Arab uprising seemed to be the vindication of these expectations that now was the turn of the Arab world, our neighbours, to embrace democracy, to restore human rights and human dignity, and cast back to 1989 and the emergence of Central and Eastern Europe from the Soviet Soviet grip. So that was quite understandable as an interpretation of what was going on, but it was misleading in that it didn't really take account of the realities on the ground and what was likely to happen, what people were really asking for. And the other factor I think was important in getting the policy making off on the wrong foot was that we in Britain particularly were very concerned with countering violent extremism, or particularly extremist versions of political Islam, which rejected democracy, including in our own society in Britain. And there'd been a great effort over a number of years to work up policies to to handle that and to somehow reconcile democracy and the aspirations of political Islamists. It was a slight delusion which emerged. Somehow what was happening in Tunisia and Egypt and later on in 
Libya and Syria were somehow just playing to the script that, yes, there are moderates in the shape of the Muslim Brotherhood who do embrace democracy and who can be our partners. This was a very persistent idea, and I think it was quite deluded as facts would soon prove. So that short time back in London, I was trying to understand where our policymakers were coming from, but also trying to counter some of the misapprehensions which had already taken root. And I then went out to Egypt, and by the time I got there, it was clear to me and to others, I think, that the revolution had already failed. And this was, by June, it had failed, the revolution of January and February. The military and the civilian government, which answered to the military, were firmly in control. They were extremely rattled. They were very rattled by the foreign support for the protesters. And the big battle, I think, in the summer and autumn of 2011 was to get the military to actually stick to the promise of holding elections, which they eventually did in November. But by the time I got to where the embassy is, where, where, where my residence was, it's not very far from Tahrir Square, and certainly a huge amount of tear gas would flow down towards us on the prevailing wind. And then it became very violent, um, with a great deal of very brutal repression. And there was no doubt in my, my mind that the authoritarian regime, which had always been there, was not going to let anything go. What were the key drivers? Was it a lack of expertise in the Foreign Office? Was it a way in which we were using that expertise? Was it that we were talking to the wrong people? Why is it that we didn't quite understand the situation as it really was? I think the motivations of the protesters were fairly clear. These were usually young, but not always young, liberals, people with the same kind of outlook as the rest of us who wanted human rights, democracy and uh, dignity and so on. And they were prepared to go to some lengths in, in the protests in Tahrir Square. To begin with, they weren't, rather like in Tunis, they weren't expecting to overthrow the regime. They were merely protesting against police brutality, which was become worse than ever in, in Egypt. And that was a protest on the 25th of January, which somehow then took on life and extended and led to Mubarak stepping down on the 11th of February. And suddenly people began to realize they could achieve some sort of regime change. And a promise was made by the military to hold elections. So it was fairly obvious to interpret what has what I call, you know, the liberal bloc, a small elite urban bloc of people uh, wanted. And of course, we very much wanted it too. But you had to remember that there were tens of millions of Egyptians who just didn't live that kind of life at all. And there were at least half the country, more than that, as, as it later emerged in the elections, who strongly favoured some kind of religious alternative to, to, to the kind of secular regime that had been in power ever since uh, the end of the monarchy. So as the year developed, um, you could see that, first of all, the military and their civilian government allies were not going to give way. Secondly, that when you had the elections, which were held fairly, and they lasted from November through till January 2012, and they elected a parliament dominated by the Muslim Brotherhood and by uh, other political Islamists of a, of a different, completely different kind, we, we call them Salafists, um, and the Liberals nowhere to be seen in parliament practically. In Britain, quite rightly, people said we must respect the outcome of elections. The problem was that those elections, that, that the outcome, as it were, soon began to go sour on the Egyptian people themselves. And by the following year, they were ready to get rid of the Muslim Brotherhood and everything they stood for. President Morsi was elected in June 2012. And it's interesting to remember that the liberal bloc, as it were, told their voters, vote for Morsi and not for the military candidate. Because even in the middle of 2012, 
the great fear was that the military would somehow hang on, come back and take everything back to where it was. So even the liberals said, vote for the Muslim Brotherhood. So that was a call, which by the end of the year, everybody was disillusioned with that. The Muslim Brotherhood turned out to be extremely incompetent. And above all, they'd become victim of an Islamizing tendency from below, if you like, a radicalization, which gradually took over the whole country, um, starting with the poorest neighborhoods, and which the ordinary Egyptians simply didn't want. He didn't want that kind of Islamism, thank you. He wanted a pious state, but not this kind of runaway extremist state, which was emerging through this with more extreme elements. So it was a very complex situation. It, it developed, and I think British policy didn't ever try to drill down and understand what was going on and clung to the mantra of we must respect the outcome of the elections without really considering where that was going. And the fact that Britain had no influence whatsoever on where it was going. We couldn't either promote something or stop something happening. What we needed to be was absolutely clear-headed about what was going to happen and about what our position was in relation to that. I had a, a friend, a half-Coptic Egyptian friend, whose grandmother was living in Cairo, who voted for Morsi, as most of the Copts did. And within weeks of that vote, she was very scared because she said members of her church were disappearing. And the climate had changed very, very quickly, which was something that I was always surprised was never really um, something that the UK media or even political class was aware of. But Chris, Tunisia was very different, wasn't it? Can you outline how things progressed from there after the protesters realised that they were becoming revolutionaries? Yes, well, three or four days after they realised they were becoming revolutionaries, the, um, the president left and the revolution was, uh, had, had happened. And at that time, and as a good diplomat, I was focused on a lot of the immediate requirements, the security kind of issues, the we evacuated British holidaymakers and, and we had to position ourselves in as a government and in, in terms of what our view of what was happening was in terms of sort of public political positioning. But but I remember I, I jotted down three scenarios in my reporting of the, what I thought was, was likely to be the direction of all of this. And, and the three scenarios were the most likely, as I saw it, that the revolution would chop off the head of the regime. Next most likely scenario, as I saw it, was that there wouldn't be an authority figure and therefore there would be a, a sort of sense of drift, maybe a power vacuum, different contenders for power, maybe therefore violence, but that things would get stuck. There was no plan. There was no alternative. There was no regime in waiting. There was no party in exile that was that had, had that, that everybody was calling for that was leading the charge. So that it would just go into drift and then maybe somehow collapse. Tunisia wasn't as heavily armed as Libya. In fact, very, in, no one had weapons or, or has weapons. So I didn't think of it as an, a very violent sort of civil war type scenario, but I did think of it as potential collapse into chaos. And then the third scenario, which I thought was the least likely, but, but just about possible, somehow a group of unelected people would gain enough credibility to be trusted by the public to devise some kind of new system that people with no actual authority would nonetheless be able to run elections. The public would trust in that, they would vote, and then people would be elected who would more or less accept the principles of democracy. It seemed quite unlikely, but possible. And astonishingly, that's what happened. So informally, a group of people got together who did win the, the confidence of the public. 
they wrote some basic outline for rules and, and processes for election, how you register a political party, who's allowed to be a political party, sort of thing. An election happened, which, which the international community played a very important role in, because in terms of public trust, allowing large numbers of international um, observers was crucial to that. And a new set of politicians were elected, which who then later on accepted the principle that when further elections happened and they got voted out, they would leave. So from a political perspective, it was a remarkable success. And in fact, I think the, the one other point, which I think shows the key difference with Egypt and maybe why Tunisia went a different direction politically, was that what happened was there was a, a three-party coalition, one large Islamist party and two smaller secularist parties had to govern together. What that meant is there was much more a spirit of cooperation uh, people had to learn compromise and that i think was a, it was sort of a matter of luck that that's what happened that that's what came out of the the election but as a result the drawing up of the rules was done by a set of people that represented really both sides of that of that divide and so that divide ended up being being manageable and never became the core rift in tunisia and still isn't now and you're listening to the first of a series of CMEC broadcasts marking the 10th anniversary of the start of the so-called Arab Spring. I'm Charlotte Leslie, the director of CMEC, and my two guests were both UK ambassadors in the region at the time. James Watt, CVO, our man in Egypt, and Chris O'Connor, OBE, our ambassador in Tunisia, which witnessed the start of the revolutions which were to convulse the region. James, by contrast... Can you take us through what happened when Mohamed Morsi of the Muslim Brotherhood became president of Egypt in June 2012? Because very quickly, people who voted for him, including Coptic Christians who I knew, became very frightened for their safety and their security. What happened? And why was it so different from Tunisia, where the Muslim Brotherhood in in the shape of Enada agreed to share power and work with secular parties? That's a very good question. I think... The Muslim Brotherhood leaders I was dealing with, some of them were extremely good, impressive people, but I soon realized that they were just a handful, literally a handful of of interlocutors that could more or less debate on our terms, and that they didn't actually have any power because it's all very well they'd been elected, but actually they were all taking their orders from the Supreme Guidance Council of the Muslim Brotherhood, of the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, who would tell them to do things that were nothing to do with what you know, an elected government might properly do for its people. For example, the, the government was doing its best in November 2012 to sign a much-needed agreement with the IMF, a standby facility, to, to rescue the terrible collapsing finances of the country. And at the very last minute, suddenly the word came from the, the guidance council saying, no, no you're, not, you're not going to do that. And so I was saying, back in London, look, this is not democracy. This is a democratic form which has been hijacked by a particular you know, group of people. That was what was going on at the political level. But then at the kind of popular level, you had Muslim extremists. I mean, extremists in the sense that they were they were violent and they were had extreme ideology to impose, were taking control of neighborhoods. And nobody in the West, none of the Western media was looking at this at all. Nobody picked it up. It was going on for months. I remember my Egyptian staff coming in absolutely exhausted when they could get in to the embassy. And I'm saying, why is it, why are you looking so exhausted? And they're saying, we were up all night 
defending our neighborhoods against the extremist vigilantes. Not the Muslim Brotherhood, it was Islamists of an extreme kind who were taking over. But who were taking over under cover, as it were, of the formal authority that the Muslim Brotherhood had, having been elected. And this violence went on. So when we got to July 2013, as you will know, there was a huge popular support for what was a military counter-coup, if you like, or coup against the Muslim Brotherhood government. That was a genuinely popular movement. This is, again, something in the West nobody wanted to acknowledge. There was a great festive atmosphere that day after nearly a couple of years of great tension. And it all went horribly wrong, as you know, a few months later, with the military then betrayed the promises implicit to restore constitutional government. And they went ahead and uh, ended up by nominating their own kind of government and changing the constitution accordingly and operating in a way which has nothing to do with the demands of the original protesters of the uprising. It wasn't just the cops who were terrified of this rising tide of extremist Islamism in the course of 2000, the first half of 2013 particularly. Everybody was. And I could see the way the government was totally failing, the Muslim Brotherhood government was totally failing to deliver even the most essential functions of government. The economy was absolutely in free fall. Public finances were in free fall. Things were going horribly wrong everywhere. And it was just a question of time before it hit the bottom. And the ordinary people of Egypt were very relieved when the military moved in July 2013. Can I ask James how long that relief lasted after Sisi took over? And just an anecdote, I was in Egypt for the expansion of the Suez Canal, and I was struck by the enormous popular support at that point, I think it was 2015, for Sisi at that point. I think the great mass of the Egyptian people were totally traumatized by the two and a half years that lay between the initial uprising and the end of the Muslim Brotherhood government. They found it extremely disruptive. Everybody was worse off. Everybody was upset and confused. There had been uh, in a lot of violence. So the gratitude for restoration of order, if you like, which went to President Sisi, was great and it continued for a long time. Less perhaps now, but people would not want to risk any upset again. There are very brave voices speaking out against the human rights abuses and the loss of political freedoms which occur in Egypt at the moment, and they are greatly to be applauded. But they are a small minority, I think. Most Egyptian people cannot bear the thought of more political disruption and revolutionary violence. James, what do you think Egypt taught UK policymakers about political Islam, Islamists and democracy? And do you think the right lessons have been learned? I think the story moved on a lot because in the course of 2011, in addition to continuing uprising in, in Tunisia and Egypt, you had Libya and Syria both kicking off uh, in the spring and Yemen as well. We shouldn't forget that there was a lot of agitation for democracy in Yemen at the time. It all subsided into conflict, except in the case of Tunisia. And I think British policymakers in the Middle East just were totally absorbed with the problem of Syria and Libya and how to handle the British response to these uncontrollable conflicts. And I think the whole question of political Islam kind of dropped away, partly because the Muslim Brotherhood was so roundly defeated, as it were, in the summer of 2013, driven from power in Egypt, with no regrets from anybody, I think, among the Egyptian population. We also had the factor that you had to take much more attention, pay much more attention to the feelings of our Gulf allies who uh, felt extremely threatened by the Muslim Brotherhood. And so were very keen to remove that threat from the list. And that seemed to be what happened in due course with the events in Egypt. 
the Muslim Brotherhood as such didn't play such a part in Syria, it became more a jihadist thing. Chris, Syria has been very, very tragic, as we all know. Egypt was very turbulent. Libya is still ongoing, and I'll ask you about that in a bit. So th there is a perception that all is quiet on the Tunisia front. Is that an accurate perception? And to what extent does Libya's ongoing turmoil impact on Tunisia? So all is quiet. Tunisia hasn't been in the news because there haven't been dramatic events at the scale that there have been in, in other countries. So to a degree, quiet, yes. But does that mean that it's done? I think we're still to find that out. One a very interesting distinction on analysis about Tunisia is the distinction of, of insiders versus outsiders. So, and if you ask the question, was the Tunisian revolution a success? You get almost universally the answer from outsiders as, as a yes. It was pretty much peaceful, very, very little violence. And there've been a series of free and fair elections. People have been voted in. When they've been voted out, they've left office peacefully. The country has shifted fundamentally from one of the least free Arab countries to, to a country where absolutely anything goes. There's no constraints on freedom of speech or um, freedom of association or anything of that sort. So, uh, so outsiders would say, yes, that's, that's a success story. Insiders in Tunisia, right across the board, would give it a resounding no. It's been a huge disappointment. This re revolution was a failure. And they'll grudgingly say, well, yes, we had these political changes. And yes, uh, it's better that we can speak freely. And yes, elections are a good way of doing things in principle. But this was more about economics than about politics. People were complaining about corruption because there was a sense that the economy wasn't working and the elite around the president were, were creaming all the benefits off the top. There was a huge anxiety and anger around rising uh, youth unemployment. And that was what people wanted to change. Uh, youth and unemployment has gone up to now 35%. And so the things that people were protesting for, they have not got. So will it all be quiet? The feeling is you can complain now, you can air your anger, you can protest, but your demands, if you're protesting, you're protesting to demand a job. The result of that protest is not that you get a job. So you protest more and say the Minister of Industry should resign. So the Minister of Industry resigns and another minister comes along and you still don't have a job. That is what people are finding month after month, year after year, that they can keep bringing down ministers and governments. They keep getting new ministers and governments and life is not getting better for them. And there really is a feeling that many people are thinking this new setup is no better than the old one. Now, whether that means that they will rise up and throw out the new setup with uncertainty of what comes next, that's a question. But people are really deeply disillusioned. A huge increase in illegal migration out of Tunisia. The only way is to leave this place and get to somewhere else, get to Europe. There was a period when Daesh in in Syria looked like it was going to be winning and a huge number of Tunisians went there. At least let's go and do something that can be successful. With Daesh now pretty much out of contention in, in Syria, that that option for young Tunisians has gone. Very high proportion of young Tunisians, just, they just want to leave even if the prospects of, of even making it to Europe are, are limited and creating a successful life in, in Europe is even more limited. So who knows where that desperation goes? It's, from a Tunisian perspective, yes, we're free, but 
no, we're not fundamentally better on a day-to-day -day basis than we ever were. Chris, if some might say that the West's intervention to help countries politically hasn't always been a massive success, is there anything then, if this is an economic problem, that the West can do to support countries like Tunisia move to a system where they can create sustainable real jobs? Yes. The UK, like other substantial governments with interests in, in North Africa and the Middle East, um, have programs of practical project interventions and often working with the multilateral banks, the European Investment Bank or the African Development Bank or the World Bank or, and others. There really are things that you can do to help align the education system to give people more marketable skills, to build vocational uh, education, to help develop entrepreneurialism, to create small loans for people if they want to set up businesses, to get rid of red tape that stops businesses from growing. There's a lot of things that can be done to help support a country's economic development. Those things are being done, but inevitably you can help provide a certain number of small loans for a certain number of people. The chances of that making a real difference to the majority of people are limited unless you, you really do it at scale. So I think my answer on what the UK should do is UK is doing the right things, working with others to address those fundamentals which are able to potentially help an economy that can support people. But if you want to make it work, you have to make it work at scale. And, and to what extent does Tunisia's neighbour Libya being in such turmoil have an impact on its economic development prospects? Yes, Libya is a huge factor because traditionally Libya is richer for oil resources and it's been a market for Tunisia. And with Libya in, in conflict and collapse, that market is, is not functioning as, as Tunisians would, would like it to. So yes, that has hugely constrained potential economic growth. What it has done is it's it sort of found a kind of um, an, an informal underground economy. So there's a lot in, in the south of Tunisia, really young people's economic prospects are primarily around smuggling cigarettes and, and petrol and household goods. So in some ways that's been a little bit of a lifeline, but it's not a very functional lifeline and is not systematized and is outside the rule of law. And so yes, if Libya can evolve from conflict to stability, that will make a big difference for Tunisia. And of course, James, Egypt also shares a border with Libya in the east. What impact has the continuing instability of Libya had on Egypt in recent years? Egypt has long suffered from the Islamist cells in Libya, on the eastern side of Libya, and the infiltration of extremists and of arms from Libya. That was way before the spring. And that's continued. And Egypt, quite rightly, has tried to protect its border by finding alliances in, in eastern Libya to protect it against that kind of hazard. And so they allied with General Haftar, for example, who, as you know, aspired to take the whole of Libya and a year ago was besieging Tripoli. Well, he, he didn't succeed. He was driven back. There's a standoff now, a military standoff, and some rather fragile peace talks going on, which may or may not succeed. I hope they do. But Egypt has been very consistent throughout. They want stability and security in Libya. They're prepared to ally with people who they think can help them get that on their border. And they remain very vigilant. But Egypt has never actually been threatened seriously by that kind of destabilization from Libya. They, but they certainly want to deal with the problem. And James, what lessons do you think the West has learned from the Arab Spring? 
I think we have less self-confidence collectively as European liberals, liberals in the sense that we feel we can export uh, democratic forms of government very easily to, to other places. I think we recognize it's very difficult and that we have to be far more subtle about it, subtle about what we hope for. And I think we also just need to know the dynamics of the region better and apply them in policymaking. There was far too much haste, I think, at the beginning in coming up with rather simplistic views. There's a great deal of knowledge available, not simply in the Foreign Office and, and elsewhere in Whitehall, but in Britain generally, in the universities and think tanks and so on. We're, we're extremely well informed as a country. And I think for me, the takeaway would be just take it step by step and start by asking the right questions and then then begin to fill, begin to build policy. And to Chris, the same question. What do you think we've learned from the events of a decade ago? I think when British policymakers saw that people were protesting about freedom, the right to speak openly, the right to elect governments, those were seen as exciting and real things that the UK could back. When people were protesting about youth unemployment and the lack of economic opportunity, I think decision makers just found that much less exciting, much less interesting, and dismissed it as, well, everyone wants more, don't they? But ultimately, if you have all of the first things and you don't have those second things, and you don't have the the prospect of economic prosperity, then you don't think your system works. So we just need to engage on the whole of the set of drivers for instability and not only the set of drivers for instability that that fit with our preconceptions. Thanks, Chris O'Connor and James Watt for shedding so much light on the events of 10 years ago from a British policy perspective and on the impact they continue to have in the region. Tomorrow, we'll be looking at what happened in Syria. Mm -hmm.